do grab your Bible. I hope you have one. It'll be useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word this morning. Uh, turning once again to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, is where we find ourselves in our ongoing study through the great story of God's redemption and revelation. If you've been with us, children, in recent weeks, you know how God has given ten words, ten commandments to His people. That means you got one for every finger that you have. And we've spent the previous five weeks filling up one hand with commandments one through five. And now we've got to start filling up the second hand as we turn to the sixth word this morning in verse 16. So it's a very brief word, isn't it? Yet I trust we'll see an also significant word that we want to look at this morning. So let me read verse 13 for us, and then we will pray for our time and begin together. So here now as God speaks His covenant law to you once again. You shall not murder. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us by your word and spirit and through your Son. Laws, rules, and statutes, precepts, and testimonies are for our good to guide us in godliness, and we pray that the Spirit would do just that this day, that we would not overlook the plain meaning of this text, that we would not neglect its deeper meaning as well, that you would be glorified in our lives, and so send the Spirit among us and fill us, that we may hear with eagerness, that we may respond with meekness, knowing that we're never promised to hear from you again, and that you would help me to preach accordingly as a dying man to dying people. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I knew a man many years ago who had a thriving mowing business. And like many of you might be aware, he was one of those mowers that seemed to treat his business as something like an Olympic sport. As you could find him with his lawn mowing equipment running up and down yards to and fro, trying to get as many yards in as he could with each passing day. But if you paid attention to this man in particular, uh, what you would see not only is that he was moving with incredible haste, almost at a breakneck speed, but somewhat frequently you might find him uh, come to this blistering halt, almost as though he pulled the emergency brake on his self-propelled mower, and if you went up to him and asked, hey, is everything okay? He would say, oh yeah, everything is just fine. I noticed a cricket, and I wanted to make sure that it would pass by before I would run it over. Such was his desire to preserve the life of insects. And of course, we come to a commandment that actually does speak in a very keen way about that kind of zeal. But of course, it's a zeal that belongs to preserving the life of image bearers. Doing everything we can, we're thought indeed to protect those, to preserve those, even ourselves, the life that God has given to us. And so when you come to the sixth word that God spoke to the nation of Israel there from the fire and smoke at Mount Sinai... This is, in my mind, the commandment that no one needs convincing about. Christian and non-Christian alike agree you shouldn't murder. You can go to any culture today, no matter the degree to which you think they are advanced in their political theory, and you'll surely find some sort of prohibition against murder. It's as though this law, in a unique way, God has written on the conscience and upon the heart that we know we shouldn't murder others. But kids, you might be in here today thinking that therefore you're going to hear this sermon with a degree of a righteousness, 
for you didn't murder anyone this week. For surely you wouldn't be in here if you did. But what we're going to see, aren't we, is that if you extend out the teaching of Scripture to our Lord and Savior Himself, all of you sit in here as murderers if you understand the truth of God's Word. So significant is this sin. Isn't it the first recorded sin after mankind's fall into sin in Genesis 3? What is Genesis 4 open with? But the sin of murder with Cain and Abel. That's simply a word that tells us to live to preserve the life of others. That's the positive statement of the command. Live to preserve the life of others. And what we're going to do is notice it in two parts. This sixth word that God has given to us. First, we're going to see murder with the hands. We're going to kind of scan throughout the Bible today. Thinking particularly in that first section about the Old Testament. That ancient Near Eastern context of Exodus. Murder with the hands. Then we're going to move the story forward in the second section to what Jesus and the apostles have to say about this sixth commandment as we consider murder with the heart. So murder with the hands and murder with the heart. Of course, the commandment about murder with the hands is simple enough, isn't it? Just stare down again at verse 13. You shall not murder. So simple is it in Hebrew that you only get two words in this command. No murder. Yahweh doesn't attach explanation, commentary, any sort of threat, warning, potential promise or encouragement to the commandment. It's plain and obvious. He understands to the ordinary person, you shall not murder. Uh, but you might know that the old King James would translate this command as, thou shalt not kill. And you need to think maybe carefully then, we certainly want to, about what is meant by this word murder. Because there are eight different words in Hebrew that the author, Moses, could have used. God himself could have used when talking about this prohibition. He's using here a word that doesn't speak about killing in a legal context, a justice system, or any sort of military action. He's thinking about this simple way that RESV translated as murder, or even in Numbers chapter 35, it actually used, this word is also used for manslaughter. So if you take the fullness of the Old Testament's teaching and use of this word, it's prohibiting the taking of an innocent life, intentionally or even accidentally at its core, because you need to know that the Bible teaches different kinds of killings differently. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible has, of course, given us animals to eat. You can kill animals and not succumb to what one group in our country calls meat is murder. Killing animals is allowed. Uh, we know that God has entrusted His authority to civil rulers, magistrates, and nations to wield the sword of execution, capital punishment, to those that break God's law, notably murder itself. There are times in the Old Testament where God says war is permissible, in particular contexts, we know even if you work your way through all of the Old Testament law codes, that if someone was to break into your house in that ancient Eastern culture, and under certain restrictions, you could defend your home by killing that invader and not have broken this sixth word. So speaking more directly about murder, premeditated taking of one's life, but also manslaughter itself. It's communicating to us the central theological truth that God is Lord not only of life, Yahweh is also Lord of death. He alone thus gets the right and has the right to say when killing is okay. And here he says, you shall not murder. And the reason why he's so keen on this commandment 
that we take is altogether obvious in our culture is because of what he says about murder back in Genesis. So if you flip back to Genesis chapter 9, what you would find in the Bible's first book is the rationale for this rule. So Exodus doesn't tell us the reason for the commandment, but Exodus 9 does. Now, if you don't turn there, that's a simple enough story. This is right after Noah and his family. They're delivered from the flood of judgment. They're getting ready to come out on a dry ground, and God is giving them a covenant, really the world a covenant. And, and in part of the covenant promise that's given there in Genesis 9, he's including these commands. And one of the commands is, Noah, you and your family, when you get out of the ark, you can go kill animals and eat them. That's okay. But what you can't do is eat the meat when the lifeblood is in it, because lifeblood in that ancient eastern context, that communicated life. So essentially you had to wait for the blood to drain because then life was over. And then it was as though that mention of lifeblood causes him to think about spilling human lifeblood. And he commands this, whosoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Thus the reason why God is so earnest that we not murder is because murder is not simply a sin against another person, is it? It's ultimately a sin against God Himself who has placed His image on that person. It's a command to live to preserve life. Now, in the 18th century, a French aristocrat by the name of Alexander de Tocqueville, he showed up in America and he wanted to study what democracy looked like in our nation burgeoning political philosophy that many over in Europe had no idea what it would create by way of its culture and society. So de Tocqueville shows up and he begins to walk around prisons because he thinks, hey, I'm going to understand democracy at the beginning level if I just pay attention to what's happening in the prisons. And eventually he took all of his observations, he took all of his learning, and he compiled it into a book It's called Democracy in America, something of a 19th century political philosophy a classic. Now, consider if you advance the tale so many hundreds of years forward, certainly decades forward, and you would take someone today that agreed with the Sixth Commandment's nature, but had never been to America. And you say, hey, show up on our shores and tell us what you think about our country's society and culture. Of course, many things would stand out to such a person. No doubt, some of them positive. No doubt, some of them negative. Thinking particularly about our text. What might stand out is our nation's Sixth Commandment, sins. Well, I want to mention three things as we close out this first section on murder with the hands. The first is the Sixth Commandment, sin of abortion. You don't need me, do you, to tell you the statistics and the numbers that equate to a genocide and mass holocaust of millions and millions of infants over recent decades, all because they weren't wanted it's become virtual political sacrament of many politicians in our country. Legislation always driving forward to let abortion be on demand at any time for any reason. Of course, these young souls created in the image of God too. Therefore, we understand that this is a breaking of God's sixth commandment. It's not just abortion, isn't it? Suicide. It's only a couple of years ago that the world's largest Entertainment streaming provider put together a show that in, in some ways seemed, according to many critics at least, glamorize suicide as an acceptable decision. And you want to take these things carefully, don't you, with pastoral compassion because some of you know how there are families in our church that have dealt with the suicide of a loved one. We have to say, in light of God's teaching, that suicide is a sin. It's the murdering of yourself. 
But you need to recognize it's not the unforgivable sin. That forgiveness belongs to this too. I mean, it was just nine years ago, I remember being at a funeral for the childhood pastor of my youth. And he had committed suicide, uh, taking his life in a season of prolonged depression. And that came only not even two years after the second church at which I served as an associate pastor. Uh, That pastor apparently committed suicide only six weeks after resigning his charge from the church. Uh, There's unusual hardship, isn't there, and pain and suffering that belongs to the loss of a family member or friend through what is a sinful action. But recognize in the same way, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Forgiveness belongs to those. What about this third Increasingly normal breaking of the sixth commandment in our culture of euthanasia. Just this week, I was reading a number of headlines that seemed to assault my my news desk, if you will, earlier this week of Western society. Always, again, just like abortion, propelling legislation forward to someone can sign off and receive medically assisted suicide. For any reason, at any time. Understanding that to be supposedly a basic human right. And you want to think carefully about this one, too. I mean, just over a year ago, it was almost exactly a year ago, I sat in a hospital with a member of our church who was signing documents to pull her husband off life support. And in the course of the conversation over those minutes that we were around the table, someone had made the comment, and it was a passing but a still genuine comment, wondering if this signing of the documents was breaking the Sixth Commandment. And of course it's not. To terminate treatment is not the same thing as to terminate life. And we, of course, trust that you'll never have to make such a decision. But recognize you might. And you want to reckon with the reality of what God's Word says about such a decision. And if you look at anything in our culture, you would understand today that it seems as though God has handed us over, hasn't He? To our sins, our desires... Handed us over to his judgment, and it shouldn't surprise us, should it, that he did the exact same thing with the nation of Israel. Hosea chapter 4 tells us, God is speaking through his prophet, saying, There's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of me in the land. That sounds like our country. Why? Well, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, breaking of my commandments. Therefore, the land mourns. And all who dwell in it languish. A people that breaks God's law will always be a people that languishes. A church that breaks God's law will always be a people likewise that languish. Which is why we need to see the commandment is not only about murdering with the hands, it's also about murdering with the heart. A few years ago, a biblical counselor by the name of David Pallison published a book that was titled Good and Angry. And the second chapter is titled, it asks a question, is do you have a serious problem with anger? And children, it's the shortest chapter you're ever going to read because it's a one-word chapter. He answers his own question by saying, yes. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Jesus says, Yes, you do. Because if you fast forward the story, and you'll want to turn there because we're going to be there for a few minutes, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is delivering his most famous sermon. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his people, and he begins, after he talks about the reality of fulfilling the law, he begins to take certain commandments in view. And what you get in chapter 5, verse 21 through 26, is his 
divine commentary on the sixth commandment. And listen to what he says in verse 21 and 22. You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So see, see two simple things. Uh, first, he says that hatred is murder in the heart. You fool. Hatred, insults, anger. Now, you may think you have gotten off scot-free if you haven't murdered anyone with your hands. And Jesus says, none of you have gotten off scot-free because you've all murdered people in your heart. That's why 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Certainly, you can't get any more black and white than that. You know, parents, imagine if you were leading your children. And you could do this if it was sincere and appropriate to the situation. And it could be actually quite wise in biblical parenting. Your hatred of your brother, my dear son, means you're murdering him right now. My dear daughter, your anger with your sister means you are murdering her right now. That's what Jesus makes plain to us. It's not just that, that hatred is murder in the heart, but also hell belongs to the murderer in heart. Because that's what he says, doesn't he, in verse 22, talking about one being liable to judgment, one being liable to the council, one being liable to the hell of fire. So 1 John 3.15 continues, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know that no one who is a murderer has eternal life abiding in them. The whole point of the book of 1 John is that you would know that you are indeed a Christian. He says one of the simplest ways to know that you're not is your hatred of other people. The degree to which unreasonable anger, sinful anger wells up into your heart. So students, you have to reckon with this early on in your life. The degree to which the Bible includes anger as this eternally damning sin. It's why the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians chapter 5 that to people that are prone to fits of anger, they'll never see the inheritance of God's kingdom. Uh, Many in our culture will treat anger as something of a personality trait. You know, he's just earnest. She's just decisive. Perhaps they just need to grow a little bit in patience, but it's just who they are. Well, it is who you are in sin. And it's a sin of which you must repent. Because so often in life, isn't it true, if you just kind of examine your own heart, how anger tends to be welling underneath the surface and promoting other vices, promoting other breakings of God's law. So oftentimes, people in their own life think themselves to be ambitious, when in reality... They just have incredible anger and hatred for the poverty of their youth. So often people are wanting to grow in leadership, decisive action. When it's just they hate people that are slow and indecision. Do not be surprised when anger bites, when hatred harms, because it's a dragon-like, serpent-like quality among God's people. But you want to see that Jesus' teaching on the Sixth Commandment isn't done. So he says, reckon with the reality of anger and hatred as murder in the heart. But he is going to give positive instruction. It's not just about conviction, it's just about action. So look at what he says in verse 23 through 26 of Matthew chapter 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, 
And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You may have come to this passage in your daily Bible reading plan and meditated for just a bit on it and wondered what is in Jesus' mind the connection between the sixth commandment in verses 21 and 22 and these calls, illustrations really, about reconciliation 23 through 26. Well, simply what he's saying, and kids, is recognize this. That there are many times, I dare say, there will never be a month in your life that will ever pass without someone being angry at you. But many times people are angry at you for unreasonable, undeserved reasons. But there are times in life, Jesus is saying, when someone has a legitimate anger towards you, and your duty in the sixth commandment is not just negative, not to murder with the hands or with the heart, but it's positively, Jesus says, to seek out reconciliation. Lest your worship be divided. Lest your soul go into prison. That you should seek out the one that you have maybe stoked anger in. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're now, as a Christian and one of my followers, to alleviate that anger as you pursue a reconciliation. Pointing us, of course, ultimately to the Father Himself who is slow to anger. Who has sought out people like you and me that have made Him angry in our sin. But He sent His Son that we might be reconciled to Him. And so enabled to observe this word and keep this word, this commandment, to preserve our lives and the life of others. Not just with our hands, but also with our heart. You know, I hope many of you read a biography or two each year. The Bible is so clear that we need to pay attention to old saints and examples of godliness that have gone before us. And it's certainly one of the more favorite things I enjoy to read. And a few years ago, I had read what's now the standard biography on the great reformer named John Calvin. It's written by a historian named Bruce Gordon. And what you'll find if you read a good biography is you, you tend to walk away from such a story about a particular individual, a better understanding their, their human nature, that they are heroes in the faith, yes, but they have genuine feet of clay, that they have fallen short in certain ways. And what has always stood out to me in the years since reading that biography of John Calvin is the degree to which uh, Bruce Gordon paints this picture of Calvin as struggling with a unique besetting sin. Perhaps it's not unique to any of us, but certainly it's his most unique besetting sin, which is that of anger, which is why Gordon speaks of times when Calvin broke out with an apoplexy of anger, spasms of anger. His anger was volcanic, a contemporary said. But the conclusion that the book gives is there's no doubt Calvin struggled with anger. However, one of his greatest strengths in his later career was an acute awareness that despite remarkable confidence in his calling and intellect, he remained dangerously prone to moments of poor judgment on account of anger. Despite all of the gifts that God had given to him, frankly, advancements in Christian maturity, he knew how remarkably prone he was 
to pour judgments on account of anger. How many of you feel remarkably prone to pour judgments on account of anger? If someone was to come along and write a biography of your life, what would be that besetting sin that they would most likely mention? Would you be known as a person for peaceability or irritability? A person for hatred or hope? Fury or faith? Well, as we begin to close, what I want to do is, is help you put the sin of anger to death. And certainly in our context, this day is the ordinary way that we break God's sixth word given to us. How is it that we can grow in mortifying this sin, in killing it? Well, two simple things as we begin to close. Number one, receive God's word with meekness. Receive God's word with meekness. I hope that you're never forgetting as you come across these Ten Commandments that the Spirit uses them as a scripture pencil to trace the outline of our Savior's holiness and complete godliness. Because you need to know that, of course, Jesus never committed murder with His hands. But what an amazing, astonishing thought it should be to all of us that there wasn't even a split second in His life that He had sinful anger towards another And you want to ask the reason for that. You should ask, why is it that our Lord Jesus was gloriously perfect in this way? Well, certainly according to His human nature, is because He walked with the Spirit. But the Father, according to Isaiah 50, woke Him morning by morning to train Him in the truth of God's Word that He might, of course, be able to wield the sword of the Spirit. Thus, James, Jesus' brother, says this in James chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's like three daggers to the heart to many of us, isn't it? Slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Then he concludes, therefore, receive the implanted word with meekness. How is it that you can put anger to death in your own life? Sinful anger that doesn't bring God's righteousness. Receive the implanted word with meekness because it's the sword of the Spirit that's meant to given or is given to you to be able to put that sin to death with the Spirit's help. How earnest are you to receive God's word with humility, with honesty, knowing that it's restoring you in Christ's image to be slow to anger, peaceable in spirit compassionate and kind and gentle at all times. Number one, receive God's word with meekness. Number two, receive God's word of forgiveness. And it comes to us, of course, through Jesus Christ. All four Gospels record this most interesting scene of a great exchange. And because all four Gospels record it, we know it's very important. It deals with this man, kids, you might remember his name, Barabbas. Jesus is there in Pilate's charge, and Pilate comes out to the crowd that's surrounding his quarters, and he says, who do you want me to release? Barabbas or Jesus? Now Luke 23 tells us who Barabbas is. He's a murderer. His name means son of the father, Bar Abbas. The religious leaders there surrounding Pilate's house, they're ripping, whipping the crowd up into this religious frenzy. And what do they cry? Barabbas. Barabbas, give us Barabbas, and you keep Jesus. And of course, what they're saying, actually, in an ultimate sense is, give us the guilty son of the Father, 
You take the innocent son of the father. Give us the man who's guilty of murder. You take the innocent one and murder him. And so it happened. Jesus took a murderer's place. And so it continues to happen, doesn't it? Every single time a sinner comes to trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sin, he's taken a murderer's place. Because you haven't heard the truth of God's word. If you don't feel the full conviction of the Spirit in this morning and recognize you sitting here a murderer, maybe with your hands, certainly with your heart, and the Savior willingly and eagerly takes the place of murderers like you, if you would come to Him in faith and repentance, that you might know that He can preserve your life through what He has won for you in His work of substitution, which is not just forgiveness of sins for all of the sins that you've committed, even this sixth commandment breaking, but of course He's brought to you eternal life as well. So receive God's Word with meekness. Receive Jesus Christ with meekness. Receive God's words of forgiveness. Receive Jesus Christ's forgiveness. And so find yourself walking in a way where you can, by the Spirit's help, preserve the life of others. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to feel the full weight of our sin, the terror of our iniquity, that you would remind us of the penalty that belongs to those who break your law, that even the law would plow up our hearts in repentance. As a guardian and a tutor and a guide, that it would take us by the hand and lead us to Jesus Christ, our sinless substitute, our Savior who is slow to anger, who has redeemed our life from the pit, who restores us to your likeness. So do that, we pray, that you be glorified in our lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.